scripture reading today comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible, it's on page 992. Please rise in honor of the reading of God's word. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us before we get into God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift that is the scriptures, because we know within it contains words that are useful to us, so that we might conduct our lives in a way that is worthy of the calling which we have received in Christ. And Father, we thank you for this time in the service in which we are reminded of the covenant to which we are responsible to, and how your spirit empowers us to be able to fulfill it and all because of what your son did on the cross. I pray that your spirit would help me now as I have the opportunity and blessing and privilege to be able to bring God's word to your people. I pray that the message would be clear and true to your word and faithful, and that your spirit would prepare our hearts to receive what you have for us today. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So when I was younger... The place where you wanted to go to grab a quick bite to eat, if you only had 30 minutes before your next meeting, was a place of golden arches. It was McDonald's. It's a place where you can go to and choose from their value menu, a Big Mac, a fish filet, or filet o fish or even a double cheeseburger. Comes with fries and a drink, and if the value size meal was what not enough, you could always supersize it and get an even larger meal. Now, if you're not into the value menu at McDonald's, you could also go to the $1 menu, where you can get a McChicken sandwich or some fries or a drink or even some soft serve yogurt. And now you can even have breakfast for lunch and even for dinner. I mean, I love McDonald's because I controlled what I wanted to eat and how I could have it. At McDonald's, I controlled my order. Now, I have to wonder, have we transferred, have we exported that consumer-type mentality to the church? That when we come to church, we think that like McDonald's, it has golden arches where we come to service, to small groups, with our ministry menu, 
and trying to order certain things. Maybe we're trying to look for a community where the chemistry is wonderful, the conversation flows easily. Hey, you and I work at the same place. We're in the same profession. You have the same interests, football, basketball, board games, or my personal favorite, Star Wars, right? There are things that make community easy. Or maybe it's because you want worship music that is stirring to the soul, that lifts you up. It gives you such an emotional high that you can't help but adore God. You want to be in a community where people sing in tune, and they don't sing so loudly so it distracts you, but just enough to add to the experience of the worship service. Or maybe you're looking for a wonderful sermon that is relevant, impactful, powerful, that you think that your pastoral staff has to preach like your heroes, like John Piper or John MacArthur or Tim Keller or Matt Chandler. And I'm sorry to disappoint, but we are none of those people. But you have expectations. You feel as though the church service, the community should be ordered around me. And we're tempted to order and organize the church around us because of what we want, what we desire, what we look for. But is that really how church is supposed to be? Is it supposed to be about me, myself, and I? Paul argues that the church isn't supposed to be ordered around you. It's not supposed to be a place like McDonald's where you can order whatever ministry menu item you'd like. It bears greater resemblance to a 12-step group of Alcoholics Anonymous where people go and admit that they are broken people and they need the help of a higher power if they're ever going to escape their place of darkness. That is the church. But then how do we become a rightly ordered church? How do we become a correctly structured church? How do we become a church that truly is a place for healing for those who are broken? How do we become a rightly ordered church? And that's the question that we're going to try and answer this morning. In the text from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 16. And if you've been with us, you know that 1 Timothy is a letter that Paul wrote to his student Timothy to help Timothy order the church at Ephesus. It reminds me of the show Fixer Upper, where the couple Chip and Joanne Gaines is able to turn a house in Waco that looks like it's about to fall apart into a beautiful home. And that Paul and Timothy are the original church fixer-uppers, that they had a church to flip at Ephesus to rightly order that church so that it actually would carry out the mission of God. And that's where we're going to turn to again this morning. And in this text, we're going to see three things about a rightly ordered church. What should a rightly ordered church center itself on? What should a rightly ordered church pursue? And thirdly, what should a rightly ordered church pay attention to? What should a rightly ordered church center itself on? What should it pursue? And what should it pay attention to? So first, 
what should a rightly ordered church center itself on? Well, a rightly ordered church should center itself on the work and person of Jesus Christ. It is the hub that holds the whole thing together. That if Jesus Christ is not truly the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and rose again, then the church has no reason to exist. That the church is centered on the very person and work of Jesus Christ. And Paul uses a hymn, a song, to remind Timothy of the centrality of Jesus Christ in the life of the church. He uses something that Timothy would have read, would have heard, would have spoken, would have recited to serve as that reminder. And we find that in chapter 3, verse 16. It says this, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. As we read this verse, we have to wonder, Paul, if it truly is a mystery, then should it not be unknown? Isn't that the definition of mysterious, not being able to know something? But in ancient times, the mystery is not something that was unknown, but it's something that is now made known. It's like that moment in a BBC Sherlock episode, right two-thirds into the episode, where Sherlock finally figures out and explains to Watson who is the culprit and what is his motive. That is the mystery. It's not the unknown, but what has been revealed. And what has been revealed to us is the idea of godliness. And godliness isn't a set of rules or philosophy that we follow, but it's embodied in a person. If you notice in verse 16, it says, he was manifested in the flesh. And if you look at these six lines, you're able to see a contrast between flesh, the spirit, angels, and the nations, world, and glory. It seems as though this hymn that Timothy knew so well characterized Christ as in charge of not only the earthly realm, but also the heavenly realm as well. If you look at the first line, he was manifested in the flesh. It talks about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that God became man in the form of Jesus. And it says, vindicated by the Spirit, that the Spirit raising Jesus from the dead showed that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, that he was God. And seen by angels that when he ascended and took his rightful place at the right hand of the Father, the angels saw. And then the two lines proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, that it reminded the church of its mission to proclaim the gospel in the world and for the world to rightly believe. And the last line, taken up in glory, is to remind us that Jesus Christ, seated on the throne, is in charge, that he's sovereign, that he has authority. And this hymn talks about the life of Christ, the uh, 
glorification of Christ so that we wait for his return. And that is what the church is centered around. And so everything we do together in community should point us as well as others to Christ. Everything that we do, whether it be in a church service or in our small group meetings, it should point people. It should shine a spotlight on Christ. In the show, Iron Chef, two chefs go head-to-head trying to compete to showcase a secret ingredient. Once the curtain is taken off, the secret ingredient is revealed, and the culinary battle begins. And every chef, both of them, has the responsibility of showcase special ingredient. Let's say that special ingredient is lobster. Then the appetizer, the main course, as well as the dessert, has to showcase the lobster. But unfortunately, some of these chefs, when they present their dishes to the judges, the judges will say, you know, this particular flavor overwhelmed the dish. I couldn't taste the lobster. And they would lose points. That if you weren't able to showcase that special ingredient, you could be sure that you would not beat or be a winner on Iron Chef. And I've got to wonder, how often do we, when we gather together, when we're supposed to showcase Christ, that we mask him? That our activities seem to overwhelm Jesus Christ? Maybe it's the conversations that we have or the social things that we do, that when we gather together, are people able to see that we're not just a social club, like the key club that meets down the street, but we are a part of the church? So how do we do this? How do we ensure that everything that we do in community points others to Christ? Well, we have to think about what we do together in community. Now, these things that I suggest to you as an example to examine is not to point out that we do them wrong, but it's to think about it. So think about the worship music that you sing or the worship music that you listen to as you drive in to work in the morning, what are you singing about? Do the lyrics truly exalt Christ? Or is it a song that you can sing to your boyfriend or girlfriend in the evening when you see her for dinner? Or does the worship song talk about God, but you're not really quite sure if it talks about the God of the Scriptures or a God that a Muslim or Jew could worship. Think about what we sing. Not only do we perhaps should think about what we sing, but maybe we should think about what we pray about as well. When people ask you for your prayer requests, what do you want people to pray for? Do you want them to pray for your success, for what you want, for a coworker to finally do his job so it's easier for you? What are you asking prayer for? Is it to elevate yourself? Or are you praying for what God wants to do in your life and also in the world? Now, all these things apply to me as well, that I struggle with trying to discern 
Are the songs that I sing and the prayers that I offer, are they truly Christ-centered? And I'd urge you, compel you, to join with me in trying to be discerning. As someone once told me, T-A-I, think about it. Think about it. Think about what you worship. Think about what you pray for. So then, when we think about what the church should be centered on, it should be centered on Christ, then what should a rightly ordered church pursue? What should it chase after? What should it focus on? What it should it long for? And a rightly ordered church pursues spiritual truth and community. It pursues theological ideas with other people so that they can deepen their knowledge of God. Now, Paul describes the church as a pillar displaying its truth for others to see. We see this in verse 15. Describing the household of God, Paul writes, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, if you know pillars, pillars are supposed to elevate things so that other people can see. Now, you may think to yourself, well, I don't have pillars in my home, but you may have a mantelpiece, that place above the fireplace, where you elevate something to eye level so that people can see what is important to you. And if I go to the mantle of many homes, what is on the mantle? Pictures of our family, pictures of those memories of that vacation where we enjoyed going to Disney World, or maybe to the East Coast, or to the West Coast, or to Europe, or in Asia. They represent the most important memories and people to us, and even mementos and souvenirs. And the church is meant to elevate, to showcase, to show off, and to spotlight the truth of God. It's supposed to highlight, to demonstrate the theological tenets that we believe in, that the church has been entrusted to preserve and to protect the idea of faith alone, by grace alone, the idea of God's word being God's true word, good for living and good for life. When you read verse 15, you see this idea of a buttress. Now, buttress isn't a word that we normally use. The NASB, as well as the NIV, have different renderings of this particular word. The NASB calls it a support. Uh, the NIV talks about it being a foundation. And this particular word in Greek is hard to translate because this is the only time it shows up. But the idea of support, a foundation of buttress, is meant to reinforce a building. Now, for those of you who are in Texas, you don't understand maybe the importance of reinforcing a building. But being from California, I know the importance of reinforcing a building because you never know when an earthquake is coming. And you had to make sure that a structure and a building is reinforced, supported, has a good foundation, is buttressed. Otherwise, the ceiling may come down. And likewise, we are meant 
to reinforce those theological ideas of orthodoxy within the church so that people might see it. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, God has entrusted the church to preserve and to protect theology. But I'm not a pastor, a church elder, or deacon. Theology is meant for the church leaders, not for me. I'm just a church member. And I would say to you, I completely understand. Because when I was in college, and my roommates would come into our living room, they would find me asleep on the couch with a theology book on my chest. Because I used my theological textbook that my mentor and I was going through as a sleeping aid rather than something to discuss. So I completely understand. Sometimes theology is dry. Drier than sometimes than saltine cracker dry. But I want to encourage you that my opinion of theology has changed because of the writings of a particular author, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis described theology as a map. Now, if any of you know a map, whether you look it up on Google or on your GPS, for a map to actually be drawn up and to be created, a person actually had to travel to those places and measure those particular distances. So if you were to try and figure out the distance between Houston and Austin, somebody had to travel that before so that you can see it on a map. If you want to see the elevation of Mount Whitney, somebody had to go up and measure that particular elevation. And theology is likewise compiled by previous experience of people who have thought deeply about the things of God. And that if you want to know God, if you want to deepen your relationship to God, then why don't you take out that map and see where people have gone? Because wrong theology is all equally dangerous. Uh, and I do have C.S. Lewis's uh, Mere Christianity, where he talks about this. Uh, for those of you, who are in university, you know it's important to reference your material. So if you're in this version of mere Christianity, it's on page 155, okay? And it's this idea that if we have the wrong theology, it could be dangerous. Hear what C.S. Lewis has to say. Consequently, if you do not listen to theology, that will not mean that you have no ideas about God. True, you have some ideas. It will mean that you have a lot of wrong ones bad, muddled, out-of-date ideas, for a great many of the ideas about God which are trotted out as novelties today, things that are new, things that are hip, things that are lit, right, are simply the ones which real theologians tried centuries ago and rejected, right? That there's a lot of wrong theological thinking out there. And we have a responsibility as a church, if we are rightly ordered, to understand theology. So then develop your thinking of the Christian faith with other people. It's not meant to be done alone. And Jason has encouraged us as a church to really pursue theology. So much so that every semester he offers a Sunday school class on different theological topics. Calvinism, last semester. Theology proper, the study of God, this semester. 
And I'm sure that there's another workshop Sunday school lined up for next semester as well. And I would encourage you to go. Because each of you are members of the church and have a responsibility to preserve and to protect the orthodox theology of our church. Now, you may be thinking, well, I can't go to Sunday school. Well, that's why we have a book stand. And on that book stand, we have wonderful books on theology that are not thick, like this thick, such as Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. But you can start off with a primer, such as Christian Beliefs by Wayne Grudem, or Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And as Jason has encouraged us, gather together with two or three other people and read through those books. Because learning happens in community. You need other people to talk about it, discuss it, even point out things that bother you or are challenging to understand. That we need to develop our thinking of the Christian faith in community. Because that is an aspect of a rightly ordered church. So spiritual truth is what a rightly ordered church should pursue. But then what should a rightly ordered church pay attention to? What should it think about? What should it examine? Well, a rightly ordered church should pay attention to how it treats others. I mean, after all, the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourselves. And that's important that we as a church have to think through how are we actually treating others? And Paul writes about the importance of the conduct of the church, so much so that Paul couldn't wait to come and see Timothy, but thought that the most expedient way to communicate these ideas was through a letter. If you read with me in verse 14, we'll see this. I hope to come to you soon. I'm hoping to see you, Timothy, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, if I'm late, if I'm tardy, if I don't come in time, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And we see this. I mean, in the very first chapter of 1 Timothy chapter 1, we see that Paul left Timothy to set the church in order in verse 3. In chapter 1, verse 3, it says, And I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain peoples or certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. That it's about the idea of conducting your behavior, your actions in a way that honors God. And we are to pay attention to it. Now, if you notice in verse 15, Paul uses the word household. Now, this word household can have a variety of meanings because churches didn't meet like buildings such as ours at 10305 at South Main Street in Houston, Texas, but it met in homes, homes of very wealthy individuals. And so they could, Paul could have been talking about behave in their homes well. But household can also refer to understanding how you're supposed to conduct yourself. What are right manners within a particular household? For example, if you go to an Asian home, 
you all know, or should know, that you remove your shoes before you enter their home. Household code. If you are a guest, you remember to bring a gift. Fruits, nuts, household code. It's a way that you're supposed to conduct yourself in this particular culture, in this particular home. And Paul even talks about it in other letters. In the letter to the Ephesians, he talks about how wives should treat their husbands, how husbands should treat their wives, how parents should treat their children, how masters should treat slaves. It's all about how the home should conduct themselves. What is their behavior? Now, you have to wonder, why is Paul so concerned about the behavior of the church? Because it expands not only within the church, but even outside of the church. How do people see the church? Well, if you didn't know this, a person typically forms their opinion about the church based upon what believers do. A person forms their ideas of what church is like based often by what other believers do. I encountered this firsthand when I asked my dad, so dad, why are you so against going to church? And then he said to me in his fatherly fashion, well, Henry, let me tell you a story. I remember one morning I was in the workplace and I went to the lunchroom and I noticed that someone brought in donuts. And he went thinking that he could find a donut. He opens the donut box and finds that there are no donuts left. And he asked me, Henry, do you know why there were no donuts left? No. Because apparently, one of his coworkers, a Christian, took more donuts than he should have. And he said to me, that's why I'm against going to church. Now, I'm sure there are certain things besides taking more than one donut at work that would cause a person to have a bad taste in their mouth when they think about church. But that's just one small example. That a person's opinion of the church is formed by what other believers do. Now, that's a negative example, but there's a positive example as well. That in the ancient church, during the times of the Roman Empire, Romans will leave unwanted children by the roadside, dirty, crying, unfed, gasping for life. And a Christian will walk by that road, look, and see that child, pick him up, take him home, clean him up, feed him, change him. Christian compassion. So much so that Romans, pagans, thought there's something different about those Christians. But let's say a plague came into the city. People were dying, ill. Everyone who was healthy fled for another city. They didn't want to get sick. But the Christians stayed. They cared for their sick brothers and sisters in Christ making sure that they had enough to eat, foods to drink. But not only did Christians care for their own brothers and sisters, but they also cared for others who were sick and who were dying. 
so that when a person drew their last breath, they would not be alone. And the pagans thought, there's something different about those Christians. What you do, what we do as a church, affects a person's opinion of the church and of Christ. So then how do we pay attention to how we conduct ourselves? Well, the first thing that you can think about doing is to consider covenanting yourself, being in a covenant relationship with other members of this church. To consider church membership. Because being in church membership doesn't mean that I'm only in submission or underneath our church leaders, but it means that we have a relationship with each other that we're able to call each other out. And if church membership is too much for you, then it's always said, be in a, an accountability group with other brothers and sisters to be able to keep you accountable. And we know this. But I want to emphasize something particular. That if you are in an accountability relationship and someone has given you permission to speak into their life, then please speak up. And just don't say nothing when you see a brother or sister headed towards sin. It reminds me of a story when I was working at an engineering firm. My mentor told me the story of a fighter plane crash. The team went in to examine the crash remains to try and figure out why did this two-person fighter plane crash? They recovered the black box. They were re-examining the data as well as the audio files. And apparently, the pilot sitting in the front was flying the aircraft but took a moment to look down at his instrumentation. And the co-pilot had his eyes up. And he said, do you see the mountain in front of us? And of course, the pilot, not really thinking about it, didn't do anything. And the last words you heard on the box were, pull. That if a brother or sister has given you permission to be their co-pilot, and you see them headed for a mountain, please say something. Because that's how we pay attention to how we conduct ourselves. Oftentimes, we are not able to see our own personal sin struggles. It reminds me of something I learned at a lecture at University of Houston this past fall that you cannot see with one eye because your field of vision is limited. You can only see 150 degrees, and you need 30 more degrees with the other eye. But not only is your field of vision limited with one eye, but if you only have one eye, things appear flat. You need both eyes to see depth. Similarly, spiritually, we may only exercise the ability of one eye. We need the help of another brother, another sister, to be the other eye, to be able to see how we're conducting ourselves. Because the way that we act can either bring praise to the name of Christ or disrespute 
So we talked about the importance of becoming a rightly ordered church, and that there are three aspects to a rightly ordered church. That a rightly ordered church is Christ-centered, that it's centered around Jesus Christ, his person and works, that everything we do highlights that. That a rightly ordered church pursues spiritual truth, that we pursue an understanding of God in community, and that a rightly ordered church pays attention to how it treats others. I want to end with another engineering illustration. And I'm sorry, I come from an engineering background. But if you're in the engineering field, you know the importance of calibration, that your instrumentation needs to be rightly calibrated. Whether it be your weight scale or your calipers, because if you measure something and the measurement is off, then it could lead to the loss of aircraft or even the loss of life. And so in order to calibrate an instrument, you would have to take it to the calibration lab where they would take something that they know the exact weight of and calibrate the instrumentation to it. And likewise, only a calibrated instrument is able to do what it's meant to do. And only a rightly ordered church, one that is calibrated to the truths of God's word and to Christ, is able to carry out its mission. So may God help us be a church that is rightly ordered. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for how you are a God who is living. You are a God who is active and working in your church, that you are mobilizing it preparing it, using it, so the name of Christ might be exalted in the neighborhoods around us and the nations beyond. We pray that your spirit would empower us to pursue Christ so that our communities, whether it be on Sunday mornings or when we meet during the week, that we would be rightly ordered. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.